Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. And their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash taxnotes. That's avalara.com slash taxnotes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, credits where due. In August, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. Now, we've already taken a deep dive into the corporate alternative minimum tax and the new IRS funding in earlier episodes, which we'll link to in the show notes. This time, we'll be looking at another major piece of the law, a collection of measures aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions using tax credits. To talk us through the new tax credit regime is Lauren Collins, a partner at Vincent and Elkins. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Very happy to be here. I've been living and breathing the Inflation Reduction Act for the past few weeks, so this is a timely and important topic. Well, all right. I'm, I'm glad to have you here. And could you first of all tell us how big was the climate portion of the Inflation Reduction Act? Well, I I think if we're just going by page numbers, I want to say about half of the 700 plus pages. But, you know, substantively, it's it's huge, right? This is, you know, not to to overstate things, this is really just an historic investment in energy and climate in the United States. We've never seen a tax bill of this scope hitting on energy. You, You read through it and there's really kind of something for everyone, particularly in the renewable and clean space. You know, there's dozens of provisions in here that are meant to encourage investment in renewables and clean energy in domestic manufacturing and electric vehicles and electrification of our grid. So there's just a ton in here. If you look at some of the projections of the impact of the IRA, it's going to result in trillions of dollars of investment. And if the interest that we've gotten from clients over the past six or so weeks is any indication, people are acting on this in real time and making commercial decisions based off of what was in the IRA. Now, much of what we saw in the Inflation Reduction Act seems to have come from the stalled Build Back Better Act. So is that the case on the climate side? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you compare it against Build Back Better, it looks very, very similar. There are some really important differences, though, but the basic idea is the same. There is an extended runway for tax credits for renewables. So essentially, we have until 2033, if not longer, for these tax credits to be available for many industries. And that's very similar to Build Back Better. You know, important differences, there's new labor requirements that are in there. 
And that is novel to this area of the tax code. Another big difference as compared to Build Back Better is some of the monetization techniques, which we can chat more about, the direct pay and the transferability. And what's not included in the IRA versus Build Back Better, which is very important, is a credit for transmission. That did not make it into the IRA bill, you know, much to, I think, everyone's surprise and disappointment. What is the credit for transmission? So in Build Back Better, there was a tax credit for investment and transmission assets. So, you know, we have tax credits for, let's say, investing in a solar project or wind or geothermal or nuclear or hydrogen, and the list goes on for all of these technologies that have a tax credit that you can find in IRA. But how you actually move that electricity once you've generated it from these renewable or clean sources it needs to go onto our transmission grid. And I think, you know, anyone that's kind of remotely paying attention to this stuff realizes that our transmission grid is in desperate need of upgrade, particularly if we're going to have the kind of upgrades and investments on the generation side that we expect the IRA to provide. So there's, there's a bit of a missing piece where we've incentivized the generation side of the electricity but what we've missed is how do we get that electricity to folks' home? Now, you mentioned this giving a longer runway. What did the tax credit landscape for renewables look like before the act? Sure. So before the act, we had a production tax credit and an investment tax credit. And both of those credits were sunsetting. So basically, you needed to have begun construction prior to a given date you know, that has passed in order to be entitled to the full credit rate. And then eventually both the PTC and the ITC were going to sunset completely. What the IRA did is it said these specific tax credits, the PTC and the ITC are extended for any project that begins construction prior to the end of 2024. So it gives us a few more years. And then once we get to 2025, we're going to transition to this new technology neutral regime where essentially any sort of asset class can qualify as long as the greenhouse gas emissions rate is zero. So if you're any sort of clean energy or energy storage asset from and after 2025, you're eligible for a technology neutral credit regardless of whether you're listed as one of the specific assets that qualify, which is the way the current ITC and PTC are set up. And then that technology neutral credit is available until at least 2033, probably longer. That's just kind of the minimum period of time because the sunset date for that will start to phase down once we've hit greenhouse gas emissions in the country equal to 25% of what they are in 2022. So would be amazing if we were to get there by 2032 or 2033, probably a bit optimistic. So we probably have even more runway for these tax credits than we think. So it's probably you know 10 to 20 years of runway. All right. So what kind of projects can we expect to be supported by these credits and, and how big of a support are they? I think we'll see.
see some of our traditional renewable energy projects, especially over the next few years, being the main beneficiary of their credit. So, so solar and wind in particular are going to get a nice push from these credits, as will standalone storage. The IRA added in standalone storage as a specific asset class that is eligible for the investment tax credit. Previously, you needed to have paired your storage with a renewable facility, and there was some complicated rules to basically make them treat it as one facility. They've gotten rid of that. So now you can put a storage facility basically anywhere on the grid, and you'll get a, a credit for it. So I think you know solar wind storage, we're going to see a nice push for those assets over the next few years. Kind of longer term, I think we'll start to see more hydrogen projects and more carbon capture projects. The carbon capture credit, it existed under pre-IRA law, but IRA significantly expanded it. The credit amount is hyped up and the ability to qualify for the carbon capture credit the threshold was reduced. So you can qualify for the, the carbon capture credit more easily. So I think there's a number of carbon capture projects kind of in development or construction stage now, and we'll hopefully see them come online in the next few years, and they'll get the benefit of those credits. Same for hydrogen. Hydrogen is definitely a development stage technology right now, but the IRA provided really beneficial incentives in the form of tax credits, particularly for green hydrogen. It's primarily hydrogen produced through electrolysis of water, and then that produces green hydrogen, and you get a powerful tax incentive for the production of hydrogen in that case. So we're aware of a number of hydrogen projects that, you know, maybe we're kind of touch and go with IRA, we expect them to be much more economic. So hopefully we'll see those projects start to come online a few years out. Now, what kind of carbon capture technologies are we, are we looking at in those projects? You know, the cool thing about carbon capture is there's kind of a, a good amount of variety of technologies. You know, there, there's kind of, you know, traditional, you, you capture the carbon directly from an industrial facility and you inject it into a well in the ground. That's kind of the, the basic carbon capture technology, but we have all sorts of fun conversations with people that are developing um, direct air capture, for example, where you basically capture the carbon directly from the air. And then we have conversations with people who are looking to capture carbon and then utilize it in a creative way and, and basically find a commercial market for the carbon that has been captured. So I think that there's a lot of cool stuff out there. The, the higher credit rates, but you know, particularly for direct air capture, you can get a credit up to $180 a metric ton of carbon captured. So it just starts to make those more creative types of assets more economic. So I expect we'll start to see more creative ideas. As I understand it, the IRA is both climate policy and industrial policy. Could you tell me about the, the labor requirements? You set it up well, right? So there are you know, these, these very powerful and, and long list of incentives for 
development of renewables and clean energy technologies and projects. But you don't just get those for doing the development itself. If you want to take advantage of the full credit amount, you need to satisfy these labor requirements. And it's a little novel to have imposed these types of requirements into a tax credit, because as, as you've highlighted, it, it's really pushing forth a policy agenda to pay prevailing wages, which is the first requirement, and to train our workforce in these renewable or clean energy jobs, which is the apprenticeship requirement, which is the the second piece. So again, the, the prevailing wage requirement is the first piece of it. And what that says is that if you want the full credit rate available, you need to pay all of the you know, laborers and mechanics that are on site doing the actual development of the asset, a prevailing wage. And prevailing wages are, are they're basically set up as Davis-Bacon Act wages, which is a concept you know, through the Department of Labor, but it's it's new to the tax code. So in order to be, again, eligible for the full credit amount, you need to have paid prevailing wages. So again, this is, this is going towards kind of an overall policy perspective or goal of bringing good jobs to the United States. Now, these are good paying, stable jobs in a growing sector. And so we want to make sure that not only are we giving credits to the companies that are doing the development, but that the people that are actually on site swinging hammers are paid appropriately. The other piece is the apprenticeship requirement. This basically requires any developer that's looking to take advantage of one of these tax credits to at least use good faith efforts to employ a minimum amount of apprentices as part of the construction of the project. So, you know, we wanna make sure people are paid well. We also wanna make sure that we're training up our workforce to be able to kind of take on these important energy jobs in our communities. And I also understand that there's a, a way to get additional credits for certain developments. Yeah, so there, there's these new bonus credits in the IRA. Um, there, I think there's kind of three of them. There's a domestic content bonus, there's an energy community bonus, and there's a low income community bonus. The domestic content bonus, it's basically a 10% bonus. So if we're thinking about the investment tax credit, the, the standard credit there, let's say is 30%. If you also qualify for the domestic content bonus, then you now have a 40% credit. And that's basically 40% of your capital costs that you've just gotten back as a tax credit. So it's super powerful. But of course, in order to get that additional 10%, you need to make sure that the facility or the project that you've installed has a sufficient amount of domestic content. Um, and so the specifics there are that all the steel, all of the iron, and a minimum percentage of the manufactured products that make up the facility are US manufactured. That percentage starts at 40% and then it ramps up over time. And so you need to, again, be able to establish that all of the things that have made up your facility 
are coming from the US. And then if you're able to do that, you get an additional 10%. And then again, the other two, that's the energy community bonus and the low income community bonus. These are available based off where your project or your facility is located. On the low income community bonus side, it's, it's just that. Um, if you're located in a certain low income community, you can be entitled to a 10 or 20% bonus, but that's only available for small projects, larger utility scale projects, are not eligible for the low income community bonus, but they might be eligible for the energy community bonus, um, which is basically all it's getting at is they wanna encourage investment in communities that have traditionally been focused on oil or gas or coal. And if you're investing in a renewable or clean asset in one of these communities and helping to revitalize that community or or change some of the economy there, then you can get an additional 10% bonus. So if you are lucky enough to find a way to be eligible for all of these credits and all of these bonuses, you could have an investment tax credit as high as 70%. It might be close to impossible to thread the needle and be entitled to everything, but certainly there will be projects that will be eligible for a 50% tax credit because they've qualified for the full ITC, domestic content, and the energy community. And then you've basically, again, gotten back 50% of your capital costs in the form of a tax credit. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Now is the time to focus on firm preparation, because same as last year is no longer working for your staff or clients. It's more important than ever to assess current firm processes and make improvements. The SafeSend suite automates manual, labor-intensive tasks across the tax engagement, from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages, the SafeSend suite makes it easy. Automation is transforming how firms work. Schedule a demo at SafeSend.com to get started, and smile knowing that you will be ready for next tax season. I understand that there was a change in the way that these credits could be claimed through, I understand, uh, like a transferability of the, of the credits. Could you tell us about that? Yeah. So as background, and everyone listening will, will know this, but in order for a tax credit to be valuable, traditionally, you've needed to have a tax liability to offset it against. Otherwise, you just kind of carry it forward until you do. So what people have had to do in the past, you know, particularly developers of renewable assets who oftentimes do not have a large tax bill, is partner with someone who does. And, you know, you'll you'll hear that referred to as a tax equity investor. And so they'll enter into somewhat complicated partnership arrangements with folks that can monetize the tax credit. And that's a way that people have been able to take advantage of tax credits in this space historically. What the IRA does is it says you can still do that, you know, and there's there's many reasons why people will continue to engage in tax equity transactions, but it gives some additional options so that that's not the only, you know, path forward if you're looking to monetize a tax credit. So as you mentioned, there's transferability. This is, you know, it's, it's really as simple as just selling the credit. So if you generate a credit, if you can find a willing buyer, you can agree on a price, you can sell the credit to a third party 
who will be able to take that tax credit and report it on its tax return against its own tax liability. So you no longer need to enter into a complicated partnership type arrangement. You can basically enter into, it's more like M&A, right? Here's a credit or here's my asset and I'm gonna sell it to you for an agreed upon price. That's not to say it's gonna be like completely without transaction costs because there will be plenty of transaction costs. These are still very sophisticated parties and there will be reps and warranties and indemnities that need to be um, negotiated, but it's still another option apart from tax equity. The third option that was added was direct pay. This is a little bit different from Build Back Better. In Build Back Better, you could do direct pay pretty much for any asset and you know, regardless of what type of taxpayer you are. The, the IRA changed it a little bit. And direct pay is basically, it's just a grant. So you've, you've taken your tax credit and you've turned it into a cash payment from the government. You'll run that process through your tax return, but the impact's the same. It, it's just a cash payment. The important limitation in the IRA though is that it's really kind of geared for tax exempts, um, state and local governments, rural electric cooperatives, Indian tribes, a few others, but the people that can take advantage of it is significantly limited. Exceptions to that though are five years of the hydrogen credit and the carbon capture credit. You can use direct pay for that period of time for those credits, regardless of what type of taxpayer you are, which is very important for those technologies because again, they're a little bit more novel, a little bit more development stage for some of them. So it helps that they can do this kind of grant or direct payment instead of having to find a buyer or a tax equity investor. You can also do direct pay for the advanced manufacturing production tax credit, which is basically a credit for domestic manufacturing where you get a you know, per dollar per kilowatt type credit for renewable components that are produced in the United States. Is there any sense yet about how soon we'll start to see new projects that are coming about specifically because of the Inflation Reduction Act? Oh, I, I mean, I think that it's already happening. I mean, we're seeing lots of activity, lots of excitement. We're having conversations with clients multiple times a day, you know, that are, that are, are changing their behavior. As a result of the IRA, there was also um, some information this morning that was sent around just at the firm internally about the number of deals that are moving to the U.S. So these are basically like manufacturing facilities that will be onshored as a result of IRA. So we're seeing this in real time. You know, I, I mentioned hydrogen too. We're seeing projects that had been kind of set aside. Now they're reinvigorated because of the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's happening. It'll remain to be seen the scale and you know how quickly some of these are actually executed, but the momentum is definitely there. And this bill also supports the development of nuclear power. Do you foresee that being something that gets taken advantage of, or is that does that require too much time and commitment? 
So an important nuance of the nuclear tax credit that is in IRA, I should say, is that it applies to facilities that are already in existence. So, you know, from my perspective, that means they they don't want you to develop new nuclear, but they want you to keep the stuff that's already in existence around and operating and for it to just continue to be a part of our energy mix in this country. You know, I think it goes without saying that our energy needs are only growing um, and exponentially. So things like nuclear, things like renewables, even traditional, you know, oil and gas, there's kind of a space for everything. And I think the nuclear credit was a, a reaction to that. It's, you know, we need everything to kind of be, you know, all hands on deck if we're going to be able to make sure we satisfy our energy needs. So to the point of the energy needs and the other portion of this bill, which is to get down the amount that consumers are using, there are some tax credits available to individuals for energy efficiency. Uh, What sort of tax credits are they? Yeah, so it's similar to the extension of the investment tax credit for businesses. There is also extension of the tax credit that homeowners are entitled to for energy property. So for putting a solar panel on your roof, for example, that tax credit has been extended. There's also deductions available and credits available for, as you said, energy efficiency. So for example, installation of energy efficient windows or boilers or heaters, there's a a place in the IRA for those benefits as well. There's also electric vehicle credits. Um, Those have been getting a lot of attention, of course. They're available for new and used electric vehicles, which is kind of cool. You know, oftentimes the the code requires an asset to be new to get a credit. This is a different twist on that. So you can buy a used electric vehicle and get a tax credit. I believe it's up to $4,000 on your purchase. Speaking of the electric vehicle credit, I understand that there was an older credit that's that's beginning to phase out and is being replaced by this new system that has a few more requirements on it. Yes. No, you're, you're absolutely right. There are some new requirements. And the, the requirements basically get at you know, moving things to the U.S. You know, I, I don't think it's any secret that a lot of the technology and the you know, minerals and materials and components that make up our electric vehicles do not come from the United States. So the the credit is really contingent, or I should say that a taxpayer's entitlement to the credit is contingent on the vehicle meeting certain kind of domestic manufacturing requirements so that we're giving credits for things that have actually been assembled here in the United States. On the flip hand, you know, one of the things that improved in the electric vehicle credit is previously there was a cap per manufacturer, which is kind of a a weird concept. But, you know, you depending on which manufacturer you were, you could kind of use up your your cap sooner than later. And it might push people to buy, you know, one version of an electric vehicle versus another. They got rid of that. So that is an improvement, even though there is this additional limitation on requiring the vehicle to have been manufactured in the U.S., basically. Now, turning back to the larger picture here, I know hearing from economists, they often talk about how a tax credit is the way to deal with climate change. This 
bill seems to be mostly carrots instead of the stick of a carbon tax. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. You know, this bill is just chock full of tax incentives. You know, as, as we've talked about, there's there's a little bit for everyone and it's in the form of a financial incentive. So it's it's to encourage people to make investments, to change their manufacturing location, to electrify their assets. There is a piece of the IRA that imposes, you know, emissions and methane taxes and the like. I'm very happy to say that I get to focus on the happy part of the bill, which is the credits and the incentives. And that's, I mean, I think that's, I think it's a good way to come at it. As we've talked about, you know, the energy mix really requires or energy needs require the energy mix to be diverse. So instead of a stick approach where we're penalizing people for activities that, you know, are still important for our energy needs, we should just encourage more and yes, encourage it in a responsible or renewable or green manner. Are there any projections on expectations for how this bill will work? Is it going to meet the the climate goals that the administration has set? You know, I, goodness, I, as a just as a human being, I hope so, right? I think our goals are ambitious for sure. I think that the main impediment as, as I see it, and this is, you know, from the perspective of a tax attorney, not as an econ- economist or you know, an an expert in kind of energy needs across the country. But um, I think our biggest impediment is transmission. And I think we've done a really great job in the IRA of encouraging investment in generation. But again, how we get that generation to people's homes and businesses that's the the next hurdle that we need to figure out a way to overcome. Otherwise, electricity is going to continue to be scarce and expensive. So I think that's the next piece. I don't know that that's going to happen through the tax code. It seems like what is needed there more is permitting reform, which, as I understand it, is in process as we speak. But, you know, remains to be seen whether we get that figured out. Well, Lauren, this has been great. I wish you the best of luck with the flood of new work coming your way. Thank you for being here. Yeah, no, my pleasure. And if you know any good tax lawyers, send them my way because we are quite busy. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Jasper Cummings explains why all acquisitions are bootstrap acquisitions. Robert Warren and Timothy Fogarty argue that refunding the IRS will make it functional again. In Tax Notes State, Marty Sullivan examines how state severance tax revenues have skyrocketed since 2007. Ethan Miller and Michael Giovannini provide updates from the fast-paced world of unclaimed property. In Tax Notes International, Stephanie Song Johnston reports on Pascal Saint-Amand's planned resignation from the OECD at the end of October. Three Matheson practitioners examine the deductibility of digital services taxes in Ireland. And finally, in Featured Analysis, 
Ryan Finley argues that there are many possible grounds for appealing the bizarre transfer pricing method endorsed in Medtronic 2. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at taxnotes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.